It's time for the next Evening Under Lamplight podcast with Robert Louis Abrahamson and Dante Alighieri as we move this time through Canto 22 of the Purgatorio. The previous canto ended in that climactic moment when Statius learned that the shade standing in front of him was that very Virgil who had been the biggest influence in his life, both as a poet and as a Christian. This next canto follows on, but, but not directly. We, we come across Dante and Virgil and Statius as they're climbing the stairs to the next level. When we're told in retrospect that the angel of the circle of avarice had performed the usual ritual of showing them the path upwards, erasing the pea of avarice from Dante's forehead, and blessing him with one of the Beatitudes, Beati quisitium justitiam, blessed are those who thirst for righteousness. Leaving out the other part of the blessing, which runs in full, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Virgil and Statius are chatting as they climb, with Dante following up behind. In fact, Dante does not have much to say in this canto. He's sort of pushed to the background as these two great Latin poets talk together, almost, almost we might say, gossip together. Statius had been expressing his great love for Virgil, and now Virgil replies, A virtuous love for someone always generates a loving response in return at least when the other person knows of that love. And and yes, I had heard about you back when Juvenal joined us in Limbo. He told me about you, and I have ever since cherished you as much as anyone can cherish someone he's never met. Talking with you will make this ascent seem very short. To start the conversation, Virgil has a question. Tell me, he says, you are very wise, as I know, so how did you come to fall into that sin of avarice? <laughs> Statius smiles a bit at this. Your concern, he says, shows how much you love me, but actually you've come to the wrong conclusion. You saw me down there on the terrace of avarice, and naturally you supposed I had been avaricious before I repented. But my sin was the very opposite. It's not that I grabbed too much. I was at the other extreme. I spent too much. And I would have ended up in that circle of hell where avarice and prodigality circle around, banging huge boulders against each other, if I hadn't read your lines about the way the love of gold drives the human heart. I began to see that not just holding on to money too much was sinful, but also throwing it away too extravagantly was also a sin. How many others will not have repented their wrong attitude to money and have to spend eternity down there in hell? By the way, you can see that it's not only the main sin that suffers over here, but also its opposite extreme. And to conclude, that's why I was spending all that time here, even though, strictly speaking, it wasn't avarice I was healing from. Okay, that answers one of Virgil's questions, but he's puzzled by something else. When you wrote your Thebiad, it doesn't seem that you had yet found that faith that has saved you. And so what was it then that enlightened you? Now here's another startling moment in that conversation. What led me to my faith? Why, it was you who did it. You didn't just influence my poetry. You opened up my faith like someone who goes along a path at night, holding a lantern behind him to light the path for others, even though he doesn't see the path himself. 
It was your line about the new age coming with the return of justice and that divine son born from heaven. Here, says Statius, let me explain in more detail what happened. The Christian faith was already spreading through the Roman world by all those missionaries. I, of course, couldn't help hearing about their message, which accorded so well with those lines of yours, that I began to take their message seriously. That led me to seek out these Christian teachers, whose words struck me more and more as holy words to be taken seriously. Then the Emperor Domitian began persecuting the Christians. I sympathized with the persecuted ones, and I gave them what comfort I could. I was so impressed with the way they behaved that I held to their views and turned away from all others. I was, I was baptized, and, and, and this was actually before I wrote the Thebiad, but, but I was afraid to come out as Christian. It was too dangerous. I didn't have the courage and kept the outward appearance of a proper Roman pagan. This delay in openly joining the church led me to spend 400 years on the Terrace of Sloth. And now it's Statius' turn to ask a question. While there's still time as we climb these stairs, tell me if you know, what's become of Terence and Cecilius, Plautus and Varius? Are they in hell, and, and if so, where? Yes, says Virgil, all those great writers are down there with me in limbo, and many more, all down there where the great Homer also is. We often sit around talking about the muses and about poetry. And then Virgil goes through a catalogue of Greek writers also in limbo, as well as various characters from Statius II epics, also found in limbo. By this time, they're at the top of the staircase and they stop talking to look around at what's here at the next terrace. It's now after ten o'clock in the morning, and Virgil suggests, since there's no one around to ask for directions, that they should make their way around this terrace in the same direction they've taken in the others in the other terraces. Yes, I agree, says Statius, and so they proceed. As they'd been on the staircase, Virgil and Statius walked together, talking about poetry, with Dante walking behind, taking it all in. But the conversation stops when they come across something unexpected, a tree, right there in the middle of the path, the first sign of vegetation here on Purgatory. It's full of tempting fruit, but the branches grow wider as they go up, like an inverted fir tree, so that it's impossible to climb up and take any of that delicious fruit. And down from the rock face is pouring a stream of water, making the upper leaves wet. Virgil and Statius are getting closer to the tree when a voice suddenly breaks out from among the branches, You're not going to get any of this fruit. And then that voice pronounces a catalogue of virtuous eating. Mary made sure that the marriage feast was properly ordered more than she thought of feeding herself, remembering that her mouth was to be used for prayer more than for feeding. The old Roman matrons were satisfied with water to drink. Daniel turned his back on the banquet feasts and learned wisdom. The first age savoured the simple foods it had, enjoying acorns and finding the water from streams as delicious as nectar. Honey and locusts were good enough for John the Baptist in the desert, who was really as great as you read about him in the Gospel. And with these words, examples of temperance and eating, the canto ends.
I proposed at the end of the last podcast that one reason why Virgil might not have wanted Statius to embrace his feet was that this was Dante's journey, not his. It's not fitting for Virgil to get this kind of notice. But then we come to this canto where Virgil seems to be the main character. Dante seems to be thrust in the background, though to be sure he's carefully taking in everything Statius and Virgil talk about. More than two-thirds of the canto is taken up with the conversation between the two Latin poets, part of it explaining more about the workings of purgatory, some of it telling us more about Statius' history, and some of it, well, just gossip about important characters in history and in fiction. And then the three of them arrive on the next terrace and encounter that tree full of forbidden fruit. Dante explicitly tells us that Virgil and Statius approach the tree, leaving himself out of it, or perhaps just letting us assume that, of course, he too is coming closer. It's also interesting to see Virgil taking over Dante's role of the questioner, asking Statius about his history, not so Dante can learn, but, we imagine, just out of his own perfectly understandable curiosity. How did this other pagan find his way to salvation when Virgil couldn't? And, and then the poignancy that it was Virgil himself who opened his eyes to salvation. Virgil's theme of lacrimae rerum, the tears of things, pervades these cantos. One odd feature at the beginning of the canto is that we do not see the angel of the terrace of avarice, sometimes called the angel of justice or the angel of liberality, though, as we've discussed, I'd like to call him the angel of letting go. We learn of this angel only retrospectively. It's almost as though Dante has been so focused on what the other two are talking about that he has hardly paid attention to the angel and, and doesn't let us pay much attention either. And I wonder whether we can make a useful connection here. We're coming up to the sin of gluttony, which, as we'll discuss later, is not just the inordinate love of eating, but the excessive love of any kind of pleasurable activity. So much attention to the pleasure that we forget other duties, like the glutton so concerned with the food on the table that he ignores the company sharing the meal with him. Similarly, Dante is so intent on the pleasure of listening to these two poets, who have meant so much to him, that he ignores the angel, the blessing, and the erasure of the pea. All right, this connection is a little tenuous, but it might make sense. Otherwise, that retrospective depiction of the angel is just, just, another clever means of varying the transition between the cantos and between terraces. The angel blesses Dante with an abridged beatitude. Beati qui sitiunt justitiam. Blessed are they who thirst after righteousness. In what way is that connected to avarice, or of letting go of avarice? We can see that thirst is connected with the image we saw at the opening of the previous canto, where Dante says, leaving Adrian before he had all his questions answered, was like taking a sponge out of the pail before it was filled with water. He's the sponge, and he's thirsty. And what is he thirsty for? Well, that's where the word justitiam comes in. It gives us the English word justice, but it's better translated as righteousness. That is, doing the right thing. Blessed are those who thirst after doing the right things, as opposed to the avaricious who thirst inordinately after power, prestige, and possessions. 
We remember Fabricius, who had no thirst for money or power or prestige, refusing bribes in favor of conducting his official business in the right way and giving up his public offices when it was time instead of hanging on. This is the sort of thing the angel is blessing Dante with. When you have been healed of avarice, of hanging on to things too much, then naturally you are now one of those who thirst after righteousness. You're on your way upwards. The conversation between Virgil and Statius is it's a very human moment, as these two, who have admired each other for a long time, finally meet and exchange news and ideas. And incidentally, we pick up more information about Dante's myth about life after death. We learn, among other things, that new arrivals in limbo are welcomed for their news about what's going on in the living world. The newly arrived poet Juvenal goes over to Virgil to tell him about this new poet Statius, who's been so influenced by the Aeneid. And I suppose it's fair to assume that Juvenal recites Statius' two epics to Virgil, since Virgil seems to know about the poems. And that's not improbable. A good imagination like Juvenal's would have no trouble in memorizing even very long poems. We learn that although avarice gets prominence on this terrace, the other extreme, prodigality, also has a place here. I think I mentioned before that prodigality is also a form of grabbing, of hanging on to power, prestige, and possessions, spending too much money so you can hang on to more possessions. It, it reminds me of a young student I had several years ago who told us all very proudly that he had over a hundred pairs of Nike trainers. Every time a new kind came out, he bought one pair to use and another pair to keep in the box to increase in value. Was he being both a spendthrift and a hoarder? I suppose we're now entering into the region of collectors, who allow themselves to be tempted into spending more money than they should in getting things just because they are there. Why did you buy that book? You already have every book he ever wrote. Yes, but I don't have this book in this edition. <laughs> Is this person really thirsting after righteousness, after doing good in the world? Come back down to earth and put your face in the dust of this terrace. Or you can be prodigal of power. We have an example of that from a few cantos ago. You remember that Hugh Capet was predicting that Pope Boniface VIII would give away some of his power to Capet's descendant Philip IV. He invited him to come into Italy, ostensibly to bring peace between warring factions, but really so that he could wipe out the opposition party and give Boniface complete control of Florence and other places, giving away too much power in order to keep more power. This was not thirsting for righteousness, and in fact it was self-destructive in the end. Philip abducted the Pope and kept him confined for a number of days, so traumatizing him that the 86-year-old Pope died a month later. And while we're at it, let's look at how we might be prodigal of prestige. Let's say I am a celebrity full of prestige, looked up to and admired by crowds of people. And here you come, maybe a friend of mine from younger days, maybe just an admirer, but I bring you up on stage, or I pull you into some of the publicity photos, giving you that prestige of appearing along with me. Now you're a celebrity of sorts, too. Hey, did you see my picture on the cover next to so-and-so? 
But as you are promoting yourself like this, you are also, of course, ensuring that my name keeps appearing. Your prestige so bound up with mine enhances my prestige. And then also, of course, my prestige has increased. Look what a wonderful man I am. Even though I'm really famous, I still remember old friends, and I reach out to my fans. How wonderful I am. Celebrities know how much their prestige depends on raising up others' prestige. This, of course, is not the right use of prestige. Okay, back to Canto 22, and to what we learn from the two Latin poets' conversation. Another thing we learn here is the story of Statius' conversion, one of the very few examples we get on Purgatory of someone actually converting. And it's a very human story, human in its exposure of human frailty. Statius was not brave enough to come out as Christian once he had the inner conviction that the Christian message was true. It was just too dangerous to be a professing Christian under the emperor Domitian, much safer to remain a crypto-Christian. This hesitation, this lack of zeal, caused Statius to remain for 400 years on the terrace of sloth. Dante is making up this story, of course, about Statius having converted. It's in none of the stories about him, but there's nothing to hinder Dante from adding this detail to his poem if he insists that it was a hidden detail in the story. In the same way, we might, we might say, though I don't know why we would want to, that Donald Trump secretly voted for Joe Biden so that he would be relieved of a job he really didn't like. There's no way to prove that he didn't vote for Biden, is there? And if it works for the purpose of our story, we can do this. It's not fake news. It's literature. It's feigning. We all know it's fictional, and we judge it for its place in the story as a whole. Well, so what is the point of having a crypto-Christian status come into the story at this point? Well, for one thing, it provides one more angle to the sin of sloth, that hesitation to proclaim one's faith. If you have become convinced of the truth, we learn here, you must not keep it to yourself, even if coming out would expose you to persecution and danger. The truth is the truth, and according to the imagery of these cantos, we must be zealous. We need not go round proclaiming it everywhere, but we can't be ashamed of it and keep it secret. Probably another reason why it's good to have Statius join Dante and Virgil is to show that it is possible for some of the best of the ancient world to rise to divine joy. We must not judge the state of someone's soul by outward appearances. We can tell if the tree is bad if it produces bad fruit, but if we see no fruit, we must not automatically conclude that the tree is rotten. Virgil says that he could not see any evidence in Statius' poems of any Christian faith, but as we see here, that does not mean that he hadn't been a Christian. And so, if the moral is, you never know, then it's best we give everyone the benefit of the doubt. After all, if we remember, that was the instruction given to the guardian at the gate, err on the side of acceptance rather than condemnation. Having Statius along with them also varies the plot. Instead of just the two of them, Dante and Virgil, the pilgrimage has been enlarged to three, and one of them is a saved soul, and presumably can explain more to Dante than Virgil could. But we'll have to wait for further cantos to see how this added person adds to the drama.
And finally, as we'll see, conversations with Statius allowed Dante to make further points about the nature and value and practice of poetry, one of the themes he has been recurring to throughout the Divine Comedy. By the way, what was it exactly that Statius read in Virgil that made him see the light? First of all, he recognized his participation in the sin of avarice when he read the passage in the Aeneid in which Aeneas, standing by the tomb of the dead Polydorus, you remember Polydorus from the examples of avarice in the last canto, the young prince from Troy who was killed by Polymnester in order to grab the treasure the boy brought from Troy. Aeneas comes to his tomb and rehearses the events leading up to the boy's death and concludes with the exclamation, what will the accursed hunger for gold not drive the human heart to do? Strong words, and we can imagine they may well have stirred Statius to think twice about his own relationship to gold, not to hoarding it, but that other excess overspending it. I don't think there is much evidence that Statius was particularly prodigal, but we must accept this if he says it just as we must accept, for the duration of this poem anyway, that Statius had been a Christian. To bring back some terms from several cantos ago, we accept the quid and don't worry about the queer. We attend to the facts and don't go off on a tangent trying to explain them when explanations are unavailable. How Statius found his faith in Virgil it may be a little easier to understand. There were famous lines in Virgil's fourth eclogue, that seemed to predict a new age with the return of a virgin and the birth of a son from on high. Virgil was referring to, well, it's not quite clear whose son he was referring to, but these were pretty surely lines aimed to please one of the high rulers at the time with a flattering reference to their offspring. But later Christian writers interpreted the lines as an unwitting prediction of the birth of Christ. Virgil had nothing of the sort in his mind when he wrote them, but Statius, for one, saw a Christian message in them, and he moved from these lines in his favorite poet to those Christian preachers whose message seemed in harmony with those lines. There's something gracious, I think, in Statius' image of Virgil walking ahead in the dark with a lantern held behind him to light the way for others. Maybe this is some consolation to Virgil. And we must also be aware of a larger point being made here about poetry, about the way poetry does not just entertain us, but has the ability to lead us into the deepest, most important truths, not directly, but as poetry does, by indirection. And then there's the new terrace of gluttony. We'll say more about that tree in the next canto. There's just time here to notice the five examples of the virtue that appears to be the opposite of gluttony, which is apparently abstemiousness. Keep it simple. Enjoy basic food. But I'm not sure that's quite the opposite of gluttony. Let's call the opposite of gluttony temperance, a just balance. This would mean that it's all right to eat rich food when it's appropriate. Remember that the love of food is not a sin, it's only the inordinate love of food that becomes sinful. Making a big fuss about being a simple vegan or about giving up chocolate for Lent, these sins are on the other extreme of gluttony, if only because they focus on your pleasures, your self-congratulation, rather than on the community, on the other people around you. The example of Mary points out the importance of community instead of individual pleasure. 
Mary put the welfare of the guests at the wedding feast ahead of her own enjoyment of the fine food. Her first concern was with how others were getting on. When the wine ran out, she was concerned on the guests' behalf, not her own. And perhaps with this kind of moderation, she was able, when she had a moment to sit down and eat, to appreciate the food much more and be pleased that it was good to taste. That's the virtue on the other side of gluttony. We continue on this terrace in the next canto and meet an old friend of Dante's there. Meet up with us there for more about gluttony and its healing. <laughs> 